I'd like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 18 as uh, introduction to our prayer. We read these words, I love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Father, we thank you for the truth that we are saved from our enemies by the God, our God, who is a rock, who is a mighty fortress, who is the one who stands between us and the evil one and the world, the flesh and the devil, and grants the strength we need each day to live in a way that is not only joyous and good for us, but glorifying to you. I thank you, Lord, for each one here today. I pray you will minister to each need. You know the hearts of each one. And Father, I pray that you will bless those uh, of our number who are away uh, today, that you will, your hand will be upon them too. Lord, as the word is proclaimed uh, today, we ask you to uh, use it for the glory of the name of God and for the growth of the church. We ask, Lord, that you will teach us today from your word as we look at the, the book of Samuel and in, into the life of this great prophet. And we'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, in order for us to start looking at the life of Samuel, I'd like to talk generally about the, the two books which we have in our scripture, which are called First and Second Samuel. They, of course, uh, immediately follow the book of Ruth. And they are related historically to the whole period of the Judges. Now, these, of course, are books in the Old Testament that we have always, probably if you've been raised in the Protestant tradition, you've always known them as First and Second Samuel. Like much of the Old Testament, uh, the books were originally written on a single scroll <clears throat> by the Hebrews. They wrote it on a single, very long scroll, this book. And it was called, as best as we can determine, it was called Samuel. may not sound very surprising to you, but wait till we, uh, wait till we see what happens here. Around 200 B.C., the translators of the Septuagint, and on your outline I have the LXX on there. Whenever you see LXX, which is, of course, the Roman numeral for 70, in this context you will know that it stands for the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Latin word for 70, which or comes from that Latin word for 70. The Septuagint is a very important translation of the Scripture because it was the first attempt to translate the entire Hebrew scripture into Greek. And it was begun in the third century before Christ and took place over the next one or 200 years. The translation was begun in Alexandria in Egypt. And according to the tradition, there were two reasons that the Hebrew scripture, which had not been translated into Greek before on any major scale, was translated. The first reason was that the Jews who were living in Alexandria, who constituted about one-fifth of the population of that great city, were losing contact with their Hebrew background. They were forgetting Hebrew as a language because they were living in a Greek world. Now, Alexandria is in Egypt, and of course we think of Egypt as being an Islamic country, so they should have spoken Arabic and that kind of thing. But of course, the Arabs weren't there, and, and Islam wasn't to be born for a very long time after the time we're talking about. Uh, people who lived in Egypt, of course, spoke what we today would call Coptic. But not at this time, because Alexander the Great had conquered the whole eastern Mediterranean, including Egypt, 
and he had established a Greek a dynasty in Egypt. And so Egypt was part of the Greek world, at least as far as the upper echelon was concerned. And Alexandria, Egypt, was very much a Greek city. And so the Jews who were living there, and there were Jews living there because they were part of the diaspora, those who, who had fled out of the Holy Land because of the first the Babylonians and then all the other issues which happened, these Jews were living in a Greek world. And so they were influenced by the Greek world. They spoke Greek. So they wanted a copy of the scripture in Greek. A second reason was that the ruler of Egypt, Ptolemy, Alexandrus, asked for a copy of the Hebrew scripture to be put into the great library in Alexandria. Alexandria had the greatest library of the ancient world. And he wanted a copy of it because this was a sacred scripture. And so he wanted it translated into Greek so it could be read and put in the, into this library. Now, this is the tradition. And uh, the story goes that the high priest in Jerusalem sent six scholars from each of the 12 tribes into Alexandria, and this formed actually 72, but they rounded it to 70. And this is the root of, the, of this LXX, the Septuagint, the name of the translation. And they sat down, and we know that they translated the Torah, uh, the law, but they apparently translated beyond that. Other parts of the Septuagint may have been translated at uh, later times and certainly were, uh, including probably Samuel. But what is significant here is that it was the translators or subsequent uh, persons working with this translation who decided that this scroll is way too long. <laughs> Partly because when you translate Hebrew into Greek, you get longer writings. Greek is a language that uses a far more words to say what it says than does Hebrew. So anyway, uh, they decided to divide the Samuel scroll into two pieces so that it would be, you could carry it around and, and you could use it. It wouldn't be so unwieldy. So what they did was to group the two Samuel scrolls with the, two, with, with the king's scroll, which they also divided into for the same reason. And they called the group books of the kingdoms. And so you see there in your outline, books of the kingdoms. And that was the name applied to these four scrolls in the Septuagint translation. Well, about 600 years later, a man by the name of Sophronius Eusebius Hieronymus, whose name is Jerome in uh, English, and we call him Jerome. <laughs> Jerry. Yeah. He uh, was asked by the bishop at Rome to give a consistent Latin translation of the scripture, which would come from the Greek as original as possible, which of course would be Septuagint, uh, as far as the Old Testament was concerned. So anyway, Jerome began in uh, oh, around 390 or so to translate a coherent translation of both Old and New Testament using the Septuagint, and of course he also had Greek copies because he was fluent in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. And he sat down and made a single translation, which is known as the Vulgate. The word Vulgate is a Latin word from Vulgata, which simply means uh, vulgar or common. So it's translated into common Latin. To us, Latin doesn't seem very common, but uh, the common version of Latin, just as the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, which was the common version of Greek. It wasn't uh, the Greek of Homer or of the great poets. So anyway, Jerome uh, completed the translation of the Bible around 400. And what's very interesting about that, and for any of you who've been to the Holy Land and you've been to Bethlehem, you probably have been taken to the room 
in which Jerome completed the translation, because although he started the translation in Rome, he eventually wanted to get closer to the Holy Land, so he moved over there, and he went into the lower level of the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, and that's where he lived to complete the translation of the Vulgate, to complete the Vulgate translation there in Bethlehem. Anyway, he decided to call the two Samuel scrolls First and Second Kings, and the two Kings scroll third and fourth kings. So in the Latin Vulgate translation, which became the translation of the Catholic Church and is still largely thought to be uh, very, very important. You have first, second, third, and fourth kings and you have no Samuel books. Jewish scholars ignored that and they would have nothing to do with that until the 16th century. Finally, Jewish scholars wanting to keep up with everybody else acknowledged the two division of the Samuel scroll into two and they called it First and Second Samuel. And uh, the Protestants, generally following Hebrew tradition rather than Catholic tradition in, in most dealings with the scripture, that's one of the reasons why in the, in the Protestant Bible you do not have the so-called Apocrypha, the books that the Catholics include, such as the Maccabees and Esdras and Tobit and Judith and Bell and the Dragon and all these others. They're not in the Protestant Bible because they're not in the Hebrew Bible. And the Protestants have followed the Hebrews in terms of the scripture, the Old Testament scripture. And so Protestants have continued the tradition and so we have First and Second Samuel. And when you look at the books and you discover that most of First Samuel deals with Samuel and then the rest of it and all of Second Samuel deals with the two kings which he anointed, First uh, and Second Samuel are very appropriate uh, names really for the two books. Now the question is, who wrote First and Second Samuel? Well, in the 6th century before Christ, the Temple of Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar came to conquer the area and the Lord through the prophets had predicted this would happen because the Jews were living in a very godless way and, and they had many godless kings towards the end of that time. And so Nebuchadnezzar II was sent and uh, he captured Jerusalem three times, 606, 596, and 586. And he got tired of the Jews being rebellious. So in 586, he said, they're not going to be rebellious again. So he flattened the city and he flattened the Temple of Solomon. And it was gone forever. Well, most of the Jewish leadership was carried off into Babylonia, such as Daniel and such as Ezekiel and others. And while in Babylon, because they were separated from the temple and no longer in their land, they were afraid that they were going to lose contact with their religion. As a result, many of the leaders of the Jewish faith developed the synagogue mode of uh, worship because there was no temple anymore. And they also created what is known as the rabbinate, uh, the concept of being a rabbi, a teacher of the law. Uh, there were not rabbis before that in the, that proper sense of the term, and there were not synagogues before that either. So it's all largely a product of the Babylonian captivity. Now, a rabbi was a, pre, a teacher of the law. And the rabbis, as time passed, didn't just get up and teach the law. It's sort of like today. You go into the church or you sit in this class and you're not just hearing the word of God alone. You're hearing someone expound upon the word uh, of God. And so this is what the rabbis began to do. They not only read it or proclaimed it, but they began to expound on it, to interpret it, to comment upon it. And over the centuries, this oral tradition grew, and there was this large body of oral tradition of the rabbis 
uh, interpreting the, the scripture. Well, beginning in the first century before Christ, they began to write some of this oral tradition down. And over the next several hundred years, this oral tradition became put down in black and white and became collected together in what is known as the Talmud. Talmud. The word Talmud means to learn or to study. And so it's a collection of the writings, the oral tradition of the rabbis relative to interpretations, commentaries on the law and the rest of the Old Testament, or what we would call the Old Testament. Well, all that to say that in Tractate 33, there are 63 major tractates in the Talmud. In the 33rd tractate, it's, which is called Baba Batra, I'm glad, I'm sure you wanted to know that, that tractate talks about the authorship of these books. Now, the Jewish tradition is not always correct in what the Jewish people say about things that are not outside the body of Scripture, but it's a good place to go to look because they're more likely to be close to the truth than modern scholars are who sit in their little ivory towers and, and think that they today know so much more than people lived 2,000 years ago that they can profoundly say that, well, Jesus didn't really say that. Oh, yeah, of course. As you know, the whole Jesus seminar, and that was... If any of you saw the Peter Jennings thing uh, about Jesus, the search of Jesus, or whatever it was titled, it was a travesty in so many ways because all he used was Jesus seminar people who don't even believe Jesus lived half the time uh, or they said anything important, it seems like. So, I mean, people who have been educated beyond their intelligence, it's really a... <laughs> yeah, which in some cases isn't much. Yeah. Their IQ and their shoe sizes are pretty close. <laughs> I'm sure that many of them are very intelligent people, but they are, of course, not guided by the Spirit of God in, in what they're doing, because I don't believe they even believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Anyway, uh, what I was leading to was that in this tractate uh, of the Talmud, uh, they say, the, the rabbis down through the years have come to the conclusion that Samuel himself, this is really surprising, isn't it? was the author, at least of the first 24 chapters, of First Samuel. This is very logical because if you go to the 25th chapter of First Samuel, the first verse tells us that Samuel dies. And so probably what's written after that, Samuel, uh, unless he had some, I mean, he was a prophet, so he, he could have prophesied what was coming next. But it's logical that what follows was written by, by someone else. So the last seven chapters of 1 Samuel and all of 2 Samuel were according to that very same tractate of the Talmud written by the prophets Gad and Nathan. So according to the Talmud, Samuel, Nathan, and Gad, three prophets, were the writers of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Now, this belief is not just drawn totally out of thin air because there is a passage, and we won't turn to it because I'll just read the important words to you, in 1 Chronicles 29, 29, where we read, Now the acts of King David, from the first to the last, are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and the chronicles of Gad the seer. So they're depending on this particular passage of Scripture to support this principle. However, we should note that Samuel was the head of what becomes known as the school of the prophets. And any number of prophets that were studying under him, of course, could have been the people who wrote down much of what was going on, and very probably were. And so Samuel, Nathan, and Gad probably did write 
maybe all, or at least major portions of this, but probably other prophets also were involved in penning some of what would be compiled later into the books of First and Second Samuel. So modern scholarship, and I'm talking about evangelical scholarship now, not Jesus seminar type uh, people, they're liable to say almost anything. They'll probably tell you that First and Second Samuel were not written until about 500 years ago by somebody who you know, had a bad uh, headache or something. It's just like the modern scholars of the liberal tradition will tell you, for example, the book of Daniel could not have been uh, written when it was because it talks about things that happened after the book of Daniel. <laughs> you know, God cannot possibly let anybody know ahead of time what's going to happen. So prophecy, as we understand, has to be out the window. So everything has to be written after the fact in order for it to be legitimately there. Well, you know, if you have no faith, of course, that makes sense. But if you believe in the power of Almighty God and in the testimony of the inspired Word of God, you can believe that God can tell us a bit ahead of time about what's going to happen later on. And of course, the Scripture is full of prophecy. Well, I think that we won't really know who all participated in, in, in writing this until we pass through the pearly gates. We're going to find out so many wonderful things when we get there. All these things. Unfortunately for some of the people who have uh, been on the Jesus Seminar, they probably won't find these things out ever. But uh, for the rest of us, we'll really have, it'll be exciting. The date of the writing. Well, Samuel lived in the 11th century before Christ. And certainly what is called the Chronicles of Samuel the Seer were probably written by Samuel while he was alive. That makes most sense. And so would have been written in the 11th century before Christ. So that's the bulk of 1 Samuel would have been written in the, in the 11th century before Christ. The last quarter of the book, and then all of 2 Samuel, would have been written subsequent to that particular time. And, of course, Nathan and Gad both lived at the time of David, the king. And so they probably were contemporary writers of the information that we have here. Now, one of the major criticisms that's made of the Old Testament is that it's not logical in the minds of some scholars anyway that somebody like Samuel or Nathan or Gad would actually write this stuff down and you know, write it chronologically and, and write it as we read it here. Um, they might have said it orally, but it was 500 years later that somebody came up with <clears throat> the actual writing. And you know what happens in 500 years. It gets all twisted and contorted and distorted, and so what you got isn't the, aren't the real facts. And This is the liberal understanding. And that is why today, as you go to many of our, what used to be mainline, well, they're called mainline churches today, but used to be very evangelical churches, you'll hear people get up there and tell you that if you're a good Buddhist, you'll get the same place that a good Muslim will get to or the good Hindu will get to. Well, you know, that's fine for pluralistic American society, but that just isn't what the Bible teaches. It isn't what the Bible teaches. And if we believe what the Bible teaches, we have to believe that it is only through Jesus Christ that anyone will attain eternal life. And that all other ways of gaining, all these other ways are distortions of the truth. They are rabbit trails that people have gone on in an attempt to find God their own way and not pay attention to the inspired word of God. Disobedience has been the basic activity of the human race ever since the beginning of time. The compilation of the complete scroll, as I said, it was all originally written in a single scroll. The compilation of the single scroll of Samuel probably occurred in the 10th century. 
because that's when Nathan Gad lived, <clears throat> probably during the reign of Solomon, the king, Solomon, who reigned in the middle and latter part of the 10th century before Christ. So that's probably when the book was actually first put together, compiled, written down as a single scroll, and has existed, of course, since that particular time. I should mention to you that one, I, I didn't say this when I was talking about the Septuagint, one of the importances of the Septuagint is that it was translated in its earliest aspects uh, over 2,000 years ago. And if you can get a copy of the Septuagint, and copies of the Septuagint do exist, now most of them that do exist don't go back before about maybe the fourth century, but if you look at the Septuagint and, and you find that there it says, translated to English, what ours says in English, you have a sense that over 1,500 years there has been no distortion of Scripture. And that's been what, the great blessing of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written before the time of Christ, to look at the Isaiah scroll and find that our English translation of Isaiah is basically identical to the Hebrew in the uh, Dead Sea Scroll. What I believe is, of course, that God superintends His Scripture, and that although we have a translation of a translation of a translation in our hands here today, God has seen to it that the truth has remained pure, and that we have the inspired Word of God in our hands, and that we don't have to worry. And, and, and when you do come, a, come across something in Scripture that seems hard to match with something else, that we don't have all the pieces yet to, to understand. We just go ahead with faith because uh, I was very interested many years ago I was one of my co one of the people we were friends with down in South America was the head of the Wycliffe Bible Translator division down there and he said that 99% of the scripture you can look at and there is not even a question there's no question that this is the, the Word of God and has no problems in it and it's that little, less actually, less than 1%, where there's a problem here or there, where a name doesn't quite match up with another passage of Scripture, that what we're dealing with is lack of knowledge in those issues. And almost in every case where somebody has come along and said, aha, look at this, you know, the Scripture talks about Hittites. There were no Hittites. Well, lo and behold, archaeologists discovered the Hittite nation. And... It's far safer to go with what the Scripture says because the Jews who wrote it lived 3,000 years ago than it is to go with some modern scholar who doesn't really know all the answers yet because many things haven't been discovered outside of, of Scripture. First Samuel, in looking at the contents of the book, First Samuel surveys the last decades of the era of the Shofatim, the era of the Judges, and then it deals with the entire reign of the first king of Israel whose name was Saul. The high, and, and what is important about 1 Samuel is it highlights, contrasts the commitment and obedience to God of someone like Samuel with the folly, the flippancy, the self-aggrandizement, self-elevation of people like Saul and Eli and others. The book describes the development of the office of the seer. Seer, one who sees a prophet. There was no office in the sense that there's, for example, a papacy. But the concept of a prophet, of a prophet as an individual who comes along, who expounds the word of the, of the Lord. It's the person who says, thus says the Lord. And we see this over and over and over again as you go through the Old Testament, particularly from this point on. 
and, and you hear the thus saith the Lord of Samuel, the thus saith the Lord of Elijah, of Elisha, of Daniel and Ezekiel and Hosea and Joel. And so it wasn't an official office, but it was an unofficial office in the sense that Samuel becomes the first great prophet of Israel. And he was also an uh, interesting person because of the fact that he was the last of the Shophatim. He was the last judge. You have Samson, then you have Eli, and then you have Samuel, and then there are no more judges because when Samuel passes off the scene, you have, of course, the anointing of the first king of Israel in the name, in the person of Saul. What is interesting about Samuel is, and you get this as you read through 1 Samuel, of all of the Shophat team, of all of the judges of Israel, Samuel seems to have been the only one who gave Israel true spiritual leadership. Many of the Shophat team were able to provide military leadership. They were able to provide some political cohesion. But spiritual leadership, uh-uh. You know, what kind of spiritual leadership did, we get, did they get from Samson? What kind of spiritual leadership did they get from Gideon or Shephthah? Um, very little, Barak. But what kind of spiritual leadership did they get from Samuel? Wonderful spiritual leadership. He was a man of God in a great way. He was the one judge who truly was all that God wanted a judge to be. And he was the first of Israel's great prophets, all wrapped up in one. He not only established the office of the, of the prophet, but he also established the school of the prophets. And there was an actual location down on, on, the, on the plain by not too far from Jericho where a group of young men would gather, sort of like disciples would gather around a guru and would learn what it meant to be a prophet, to be trained. It was sort of like a seminary for would-be prophets, which Samuel held to train these young men. Not that you could be trained to see into the future, but the, the, main wor the main meaning of the word prophet isn't to foretell the future in a way. It's to proclaim the word. And that's the real purpose of a prophet, to proclaim the word. If it includes foretelling in the sense of foreseeing, that's wonderful. But it is to say, thus saith the Lord. When leadership prospects following the reign of Judge Samuel looked pretty bleak, Israel demanded a king. Thus Samuel reluctantly presided over the transition from theocracy to monarchy, from a time in which God had ordained Israel to be ruled by himself through the temple and through the priesthood and then through the occasional shofat, they now would have a king because Israel would say, hey, we want to be like all the other countries. They all have kings. How come we don't have a king? Well, they did. They had the great king of the universe. But they wanted a physical flesh and blood king, somebody they could blame for all their troubles. You know, like Truman, the buck stops here. Well, they wanted the shekel to stop with somebody. And so they wanted a king. God decided that that will be what they will get. Now, God didn't just decide this out of the blue because you go back to Deuteronomy and God in the law which he gave to Moses said, now when Israel has a king, this and this and this are to be true. So God knew that Israel was going to have a king. Even though he had told them they did not need a king, he was their king. But they had so regularly rebelled against God during the time of the judges and botched their witness. I mean, what was the purpose of a theocracy? The purpose of a theocracy, <coughs> excuse me, was that 
Israel would live under divine guidance and testify to the world that there is a God in heaven and he communes with men and women here on earth and that he lives in their lives and he guides their lives so that others would be drawn. That was their witness. That was their proclamation of the truth. But they didn't do a very good job of it. They botched it up so badly that when they demanded a king, God consented. Let them have a human king. But God also said to Israel, I will give you a king, but you will be sorry because he is going to demand this of you and that of you and the other thing of you and taxes are to keep rising and you're going to give your sons to go get killed in armies and hey, this is the way it's going to be. This warning was soon fulfilled in part in the case of the very first King Saul who was anointed as Israel's first flesh and blood ruler. And we've, when we'll be looking at, at Saul, of course, when we get towards the end of 1 Samuel. But Saul is a very interesting person because he doesn't really rule so much like a king. He rules more like another Shaphat. Israel is still not unified. It's still tribal, clannish. And so King Saul is not able really to bring it together. And if you remember anything about Saul, he gave Israel no spiritual leadership. He started out looking pretty good and he went downhill in a big hurry. And, but the only thing he did for Israel was to create a small standing army, and that was all. He did almost nothing else to unify the country or to create a true kingdom. Even though we will, uh, later on, a uh, different Sunday, be looking at a map, and we'll look at, this, at the borders, more or less, of Saul's kingdom, we have to understand it was not a kingdom in which he had a capital from which his, his authority reached to the corners of his kingdom. It's sort of like ancient Japan. If you know anything about ancient Japan, back in the first millennium, why there, there was this dynasty that ruled from near Kyoto, eventually moving the capital of Kyoto, but that they ruled in this area here, but they didn't rule all of Japan because Japan's made up of four major islands, a bunch of little islands, and they only control part of one island, yet the guy was called emperor, emperor of Japan, and yet Daimo, the, the lords in different parts of the country, just told him, to take a long walk in a short period, they ignored him most of the time. And so it was really at the time we're talking about uh, here. Uh, Saul had no real command over the entire country of Israel. After Saul's nearly disastrous 40-year reign, God had mercy on Israel, and God raised up a competent, godly man to be king and gave them their greatest king in their history, greatest human king anyway, in the person of David. So. 1 Samuel, the book that we'll be looking at uh, over these next few months, uh, describes one of the most important eras in all of the history of Israel, the transition from the last and the greatest of the Shofatim to the greatest king in Israel, from one godly man to the other godly man with a rather ungodly man in between, unfortunately. As we move, of course, beyond that, if Lord tarries and if we continue to do this, uh, and of course you probably are mostly familiar with, if you've read through uh, the books of the kings, you know that Israel uh, will eventually be divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and they each will have their own dynasties of kings. Uh, there will be 20 in the north, uh, 20, 19 in the north and 20 in the south over a period of several hundred years, that very few of those men uh, were ever like David. None in the north, not a single one of the kings in Samaria in the north was a godly king. Nineteen times at bat, nineteen strikeouts. <laughs> a very low batting average for the northern kingdom. 
southern kingdom had five good kings, those that were like David, and five others that were sort of quasi-good. Anyway, Samuel was a godly man, and David was a godly man. Not that he wasn't without his faults, of course. Second Samuel, this, the book that follows this, like First Samuel, is a chronological historical record. And whereas First Samuel covers about 80 years of time, Second Samuel covers only about 40 years of time, the, the reign of King David, basically. Now, they're histories. Both of these books are histories. But that is not the importance to us. Oh, yes, if you're like me, I enjoy history, and I like to know history, and I, I like to know history just to know history. But there are more important things that come from these books than, than simply knowing the chronological order of something or other. There are major spiritual truths. And we've tried to focus on these as we've looked at each of the books of the Scripture. And as we go through the books of Samuel, we will find many of these also. And I'd like to just highlight three of them, which I think I've listed there in the outline. One is personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. One of the things that God teaches us is that you and I are personally responsible to Him. You may have been raised a particular way, you may have had a train wreck at some time in your life, or you, you, know, you might have gotten zapped by a thunderbolt or uh, whatever. You are still responsible to God, individually. None of us can get to heaven and say, or, or get wherever we get, and probably wouldn't be heaven or we wouldn't be making excuses. Stand before God and say, well, Lord, I had a drip for a father, and, you know, I had that train wreck when I was young, and it kind of warped my personality, and uh, I married this guy, and, and he was uh, drunk, and therefore I'm not responsible. <laughs> no. Unless we are actually emotionally and mentally incompetent, we are personally responsible before God, no matter what. And that's one of the things that is taught here in, in this book. The inevitable consequences of sin is also taught. Be sure your sin will find you out. That is an eternal law of God. Oh, it might not be found out today. It might not even be found out for that particular individual in his lifetime, but one day he will stand before the great white throne, and God will accept no lawyers except one, the advocate, Jesus Christ. No other advocates are going to be allowed up there. None of the great ones who stood before the Supreme Court or ones who have gotten O.J. Simpson out of his trouble or anybody else, no matter how great they are, they're not going to stand before God and argue their case or anybody else's case because nothing is hid from the eyes with whom, of him with whom we have to do. And so the, the inevitable consequences of sin. And then lastly, the Davidic covenant. And that is so crucial, the Davidic covenant. Well, let, let, let me just talk about those, those briefly first. We have, in the case of personal responsibility, a couple of really wonderful negative examples. One of those was Eli. Eli was the high priest, and he was supposed to be training his sons to be the next high priest. Well, as you know, if you've not read in Samuel, you will find out eventually his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they were busy raping the women who were coming to worship and doing a lot of other very vile things. And what did Eli do? Oh, I just can't control my sons. Did God buy that? Absolutely not. God said, you are responsible. God took Eli's life, and God took Hophni and Phinehas, too, because they were creating, doing vile things in the name of the Lord, and he wiped them out. Our God is a blazing fire. Secondly, of course, you have Saul, King Saul. Scripture predicted way back in Genesis that the scepter in Israel would reside in the tribe of Judah. 
But Saul could have been a successful king even though he was from the tribe of Benjamin if he had obeyed God. That's all God asks is obedience. But can Saul get up to heaven and say, Oh God, you can't blame me for my failure as king because I wasn't from the tribe of Judah. No. God had him anointed king. God sent Samuel to anoint Saul. He was God's anointed king. He had every possibility of being a successful king. He chose to disobey. So he was personally responsible. The inevitability of the consequences of sin, of course, is illustrated in the destruction of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and of Saul's thing. But also, and of course most of us are impacted by the inevitable consequences of sin in the life of the great King David. The apple of God's eye, somebody who, who walked in faith and yet we know his warts and moles uh, better than almost anybody else's, I suppose, because of the tragedy which he allowed into his life. It didn't destroy him in the sense of, you know, you're going to go to hell now, David, because you did this, but, but it, it really messed up his life and messed up his family. Oh, man, it messed up his family. Most of us can just hear those powerful words that echoed in David's ears and caused him eventually to write the 51st Psalm when, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and, and had Uriah, her husband, murdered, the prophet Nathan stood right in front of David and looked him in his eyes and said, you're the man. You're the man. And I don't know about you, but those words just still burn in, in me as I as I read that, because David, great as he was, had failed so awfully. Hide it. Oh, no, I haven't done anything bad. But God spoke to him, and he repented. He repented, and, and he wrote the beautiful psalm that I referred to earlier. But did he pay a price? Oh, he paid a price. Not only was that child whom Bathsheba bore as a result of their adultery, not only did that child die, but other children of David turned into the greatest rebels you could possibly have, one of which committed incest with his own sister in the palace. Lastly, and a little bit more on the upbeat side, is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is one of the great spiritual truths, and I'd like to end on that note. I'd like to end on a little bit of a high note here. Second Samuel chapter 7, the Lord is speaking uh, to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. Now he's referring to Solomon. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, we know that the Davidic throne was not established forever physically here on this earth. Solomon made his own mistakes, as you well know. And then when he died, Rehoboam, his son, was a total fool. And as a result, the kingdom became divided between Rehoboam and Jeroboam who was unrelated to the royal family, established a different dynasty in the north. And Israel would go through a couple hundred years of divided kingdom, and then uh, some time after that of just one kingdom, because the north would, have, would be destroyed. And then the, the whole dynasty would, would end. So where is this eternal kingdom? Where is this everlasting kingdom? It is in Messiah. 
because that is the ultimate, uh, per, the one who sits on the throne of David forever is Messiah. So this is a prophetic statement. It's a messianic statement. Oh yes, Solomon will be here and he'll build a house for me, but when he sins, I'll correct him. But there will be one who will sit forever on the throne of David, and that is Messiah. And so here we have Samuel with the foreseeing, or probably Nathan the prophet actually here, foreseeing by God's divine inspiration uh, the messianic eternal kingdom. And by the way, notice how this ties together with the book of Ruth. Because in the book of Ruth, we have the Goel and uh, the, the, the kinsman redeemer. And of course, Messiah would become the great Goel of Israel, the kinsman redeemer of Israel. And so, but not only of Israel, because you remember, Ruth was drawn in and she was a Gentile. And so the Gentiles were drawn in with the Jews. And so in Ruth and Samuel, you'll see the whole picture coming together. The Messiah who will sit forever on the throne, who draws Jews and Gentiles alike in and becomes the kinsman redeemer of them both, of them all. Thank God, since I, I don't know about all of you, but I'm a Gentile, and therefore I'm very grateful. Very grateful. Next Sunday, we'll begin looking at the first chapter of 1 Samuel. It's a fantastic story, this first chapter in particular, of uh, Elkanah, Hannah, and Penina.